Welcome to another episode of Sisters in Conversation, the podcast. I'm your host, Debello Motani. I'm an attorney by profession and the founder of a platform called Sister in Law, which is a platform dedicated to empowering women through legal education. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing the amazing Tepiso Scott. Tepiso is the co-founder and director of Tumbo Scott and an admitted attorney of the High Court of South Africa. She's a consumer protection law specialist and has experience in corporate and commercial law, competition law, labor law, constitutional law, public interest litigation, telecommunications law, and dispute resolution. Sepiso completed her articles of clerkship at the South African law firm called Cliff Decker Hofmeyer before proceeding to work as a corporate associate within the firm where she assisted in various complex commercial transactions. Tepiso thereafter worked as a senior law clerk and advisor to two acting justices of the Constitutional Court of South Africa, namely Justice Mba of the Supreme Court of Appeal and Justice Mojabelo, the Deputy Judge President of the South Gauteng High Court. Working in a research and advisory role to the judges regarding some of the high-profile cases in South Africa during her tenure. After her time at the court, Tepiso proceeded to establish Tumbo Scott while completing her doctoral thesis in mercantile law through the University of South Africa. Tepiso holds an LLB and an LLM in mercantile law from the University of Pretoria and holds an LLD in mercantile law, specializing in consumer protection law from the University of South Africa. She also holds a certificate from LabourNet in initiating and chairing of disciplinary disciplinary hearings and Sepiso has publications in her peer-reviewed law journals and has facilitated undergraduate and postgraduate lectures at tertiary institutions in South Africa in areas of company law, consumer law, commercial law and international takeovers and reorganizations. Within Tumbo Scott, she has advised clients on various agreements and situations within the corporate governance legislative within the corporate governance, legislative reform, transactional, commercial, telecommunications, advertising, and labor law spaces. She has facilitated a number of workshops for various audiences, including a large corporate entity in connection with the Competition Act, the King Code of Corporate Governance, and the Companies Act. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, Tippi. So welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. And how are you? Good, good. Thank you. Thank you so much for availing yourself, um, you know, speaking to us. We definitely want to hear a little bit of, you know, your story with specific reference to being in the legal industry. I did have a number of people who reached out to me wanting to hear specifically your story. So thank you to agreeing. Um, thank you for agreeing to be a guest on the show. Well, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Wonderful. So can you take us to the beginning? Let's start from the beginning. Who is Tepiso Scott? How many siblings do you have? What kind of upbringing did you have? Which primary and high school did you attend? And um, what inspired your decision to study law? Okay, so Tepiso Scott is a Johannesburg born and bred um, girl. I grew up in, in Joburg, so all my primary and high schooling was in the Johannesburg area. Uh, I, I, I went to Saxonville Primary School um, for my primary education and then for my secondary education, I went to St. Teresa's in Rosebank. Saxonwold is in Saxonwold and then St. Teresa's in Rosebank. Um, so that's where I, I, I attended school. I decided mm. in grade 11 that I would become a lawyer. Um, but I must say that wasn't necessarily like my childhood dream. My childhood dream was actually to be an astronaut. Um, mm. So I was quite passionate about that growing up. And mm. I, I used to have in my room, there were posters of planets everywhere. And um, I used to collect these snippets from um, the Sunday time. I don't know if you remember, 
but in Sunday Times, there was these little excerpts called Read Write for Children. So my, my, my dad used to love reading newspapers, mm -hmm. so he'd always pass those down to me. And I often have things about planets um, there, and I'd collect those and ha had literally a file <laughs> on like yeah. the solar system and astronomy, those things. Yeah. So mm -hmm. yeah, like that was my, that was where I was going all my, my life. I thought I was going to be an astronaut and then Mark Shuttleworth went to space and I was like, yes, someone in South Africa has always done, has already done these things. Um, so I, I was really planning on, on going down that route. But when I reached grade 11, I, I guess you're, you're allowed to shift and change as you grow. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I realized that the sciences were not necessarily the best fit for me personally, um, particularly physics, which would obviously be a big part of being an astronaut. I need to know how to yeah. do those important calculations. Yeah. So I was like, no, we're not going to do this for the rest of our lives. We're not going to be fighting the science fight forever. So I reconsidered my options at that stage. Um, and then I decided to go into the legal profession. And my reasoning behind that was that from the professions I had um, considered, it looked like one of those professions that were firstly most relevant um, in, in terms of everything we do. Um, and secondly, uh, one of the professions that were most impactful. So those were that that was my reasoning or logic when I decided to study law in grade 11. Um, and then from grade 11, when I had ma made this little mindset shift that I'm now becoming a lawyer, um, I then, with the help of my parents, began, began to map out my study. So I didn't know much about what I would do long, long term, but I knew that at the age of 25, I wanted um, to have my doctorate. So I was a bit late on that um, <laughs> milestone, uh, but it was something that I, I had decided on quite early in my decision to actually go into the legal route. So that's how I decided to go into law. Um, and then you'd also ask me siblings. I have four siblings. I'm the eldest of four siblings. So there's okay. two boys, two girls, um, and I'm the first one. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Yeah. So um, where did you study? And can you tell us a little bit about your campus life? What was the experience like? Um, any notable challenges or any notable achievements that you can tell us about during your varsity life? Okay, um, I studied at the University of Pretoria. So um, I, I wanted a bit of a change in scenery from Johannesburg. So I moved a, a few kilometers out to Pretoria. Um, but actually I, I didn't move out of home. I just traveled uh, to Pretoria for five years. So sure. I, I studied there, I applied for, <laughs> yeah, I got used to it though. It was okay. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I I studied my LLB. Um, I started with my LLB in 2009. Um, and I was, I, was a, I was obviously not staying in res, so I didn't, I wasn't necessarily involved in things that res people do, but I was quite involved in things that my faculty did and things that um, the, the university did that sort of had a legal angle. Um, I just, I think I just like things to be honest. So I, I was always involved in the faculty festival when they had those happening, um, either performing something or just being involved in doing something at the faculty festival. Um, I was involved in the university's debating. I was involved in the university's student disciplinary advisory panel. Um, I was also involved in the university's IEC. So that was basically the body that took of SRC elections um, during, yeah, during my third year. So yeah, there were a number of things that I was involved in. I also did a LexisNexis mock trial, um, which was basically a criminal law mock trial competition uh, that took place in Potchefstroom with a number of other universities. Um, and then I also did internal mood court competition. So yeah, I, I, I had an active student life within the university, although not necessarily, uh, well, let me just say rather as a, as a day student, as opposed to being a, a residential student. But I enjoyed mm -hmm. my time um, at Tax as a student. Um, I formed a lot of relationships with, with people who became 
um, friends and some colleagues um, over my years of studying at Tux, and I'm still in touch with many of them today. And it's very helpful, actually. It's like I think I think actually something that um, people uh, or, or students should should bear in mind is that already when you're when you decide what career you're going to be you know going into you're starting to to build a network for yourself so even just being in university and you know taking part in all these different activities helps you to get in touch with different people um, which expands your network of who you know um, which will inevitably help you going forward as you grow in your career sure spot on Sophie. so like literally as you were speaking about all your involvement in these activities at school as you know a day a day scholar i had noticed down um you know how 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 much would you um you know encourage young listeners to be actively involved um with campus activities specifically for the purposes of networking you know because i always encourage my mentees to really be involved to really network and you know, networking is not this thing that you actually start once you're out of varsity. You don't just start it um, at work, but many of the people that you meet on campus in and outside of the law faculty can really contribute a lot to, you know, your growth at a later stage in your life, not necessarily even on campus life. But I've been able to reach out to people, you know, on some, oh, I remember you, you know, when I first started business, I, I had people who um, had gone the accounting route and I had reached out to a number of people saying, I remember on campus, you studied accounting, and now I see that you've gone the CA route. Are you able to help me with ABC or like the auditing route? Are you able to help me with ABC? So I really love stressing the, the importance of networking on campus. Yes, 100%. Uh, I mean, even like you're saying, beyond your, your own faculty um, as well, being involved generally in the university. And I also was, um, I took part in things that, so I don't know if it, this is done on all campuses, but um, sometimes your churches will also have little student structures that happen. And that's also another opportunity mm. to network with people um, because those are people who aren't necessarily even in your field. Those are a, a broad uh, you know, category of people that just come together on the basis of faith. Um, but they can then, you know, become very strong connections as you move out into the bigger world, like you're saying, 100%. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so then you went on to do your articles at Cliff Decker, Hofmeyer. I don't know if it's still called that right now. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, when, when in your schooling did you manage to uh, secure your article, what was the application process like? And then just talk us through your two years and some of the rotations that you did. Uh, to somebody who, who has an interest in applying at Cliff Decker, what can they expect in that kind of environment when they start working? Mm. Um, yeah, so it is still called Cliff Decker Hofmeyer, as far as I know. Um, so I had applied to do vacation work at CDH at the end of, well, I actually applied to a lot of different law firms, to be honest, um, to do vacation work. And uh, the, the main thing that I honestly wanted was just to get practical experience. So like, yo, we out here just learning these theories, like what does it actually look like um, when we are doing this in, in, in real world? I really to get some practical to see what this, what this would look like and to also decide what author I want. So I wasn't necessarily becoming an attorney, all I knew, to be honest, but I wasn't uh, dead set on a specific career path in terms of becoming either an advocate or an attorney. So I wanted that exposure. Mm. And that's the reason why I applied for vacation work. Um, and I, I applied for vacation work in my second year and at the end of the vacation work program, um, which was a two week program, they, they, they made us aware of the fact that we could um, apply for articles and that there was also a bursary opportunity that was available. Um, and what really stood out for me was the bursary opportunity because I'm one of four, like I said at the beginning. So yeah. um, finance were a bit, were a bit you know, strained. Um, all mm. of my siblings were in high school at the time. So yeah, it, mm. was, it wasn't necessarily easy. So when I heard bursary, I was like, yes, let's jump on. 
um, onto this train. So I, I applied for the bursary opportunity, um, and that obviously came with completing articles for a period of two years. So I was then funded for my third and fourth year of study, so I didn't need to stress about that. Um, and then I, I, I still, I, I actually had, um, I had, because I, I, I had a particular wanted to follow in terms of my studies, um, I actually deferred my articles by a year. So in that year, after completing my LLB, I then did my LLM before I went to CDH. I did my master's degree in, in consumer protection. And after that, I then went to start my articles at CDH. Um, so when I was at CDH, I had, you, you have the opportunity to rotate in, in four departments. Um, my first rotation was in competition law, which was um, a very big um, shift for me as a first rotation, because firstly, at undergraduate level, I'd never done competition law. I'd only done competition in the property, but not competition law under the Competition Act. So. I, I, it was a big, you know, learning curve um, and also adjusting to being in the working environment um, to start with. So yeah, just being in the working environment is also an adjustment in itself. On top of that, you're also doing your PLT classes, um, you're preparing for board exams. So it, it was quite an intense uh, two years. Um, I, I did my competition rotation, then I moved to dispute resolution, which is basically litigation um, for the second half of my first year. And then in my second year, I rotated in the corporate and commercial department. Um, and I was supposed to move, but I chose not to uh, because I, I felt like the six months I had in Corpcom didn't give me enough um, you know, the, the exposure that I wanted to have, yeah. I felt like I was just starting to grasp um, these concepts. So I, I asked to rather just stay there for the full year. So I stayed in corporate and commercial for the year. Um, and then I was retained as an associate and I stayed on for six months. Yeah. Okay. So, All right. uh, so sorry, there were actually, there was actually another component of your question. I don't think I answered mm, <laughs> or did I answer I think... everything? I think you answered everything, but just to backtrack a bit and then we'll be back. Um, you mentioned that you were a recipient of a bursary. Uh, to anybody who might be listening and has been you know, contemplating applying for bursaries, what sort of tips would you give them? What are the two or three things that they should focus on and how can they position themselves you know, to make their bursary application stand out? Mm. Um, so the one thing I, I think is obviously important is to have, you know, decent grades so that when your potential sponsor picks up your application, they see that you're at least serious about the studies that you have taken. So being, having, having good grades, uh, would be one of the things I, I would recommend, not necessarily, you know, I didn't graduate cum laude, but. Um, just being consistent in, 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 in the grades that you, you get at, at your undergrad level. Um, also being involved in things beyond your studies, I think is something that is taken into account to show that you're a well-rounded um, individual who'll be able to add more than just you know, um, theory into a, an organization or a practice because people skills is a really good, I mean, is a really important component of being a, a legal practitioner. So I think those would be the two things, you know, balancing your grades and also making sure that you are involved in extracurricular activities so that you are um, a well-rounded candidate or potential bursary receiver. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. I also really like the fact that you mentioned that um, in your second year, you elected not to, in your second year of articles, you elected not to be rotated because you felt that you didn't have, um, you know, enough exposure. And I really love encouraging people on, you know, the importance of sort of having control over your own career trajectory. You know, you have to be in a position to speak up for yourself you know and um wherever your interest lies or wherever your career is going a lot of that is based on the number of times you're willing to put your hand up the number of times you're willing to learn the number of times you're just willing to 
be in a role until you understand that it is or isn't for you. So yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Mm. I think it's very important to to be bold enough to speak out and, and, and sort of know what you want and be intentional about the direction your career is headed. And then you mentioned that you were only an associate for six months. So what, what happened? Um, why, why did you leave? And why did you then have an interest in being a clerk at High Court and at Supreme Court? Can you tell us about the two different um, courts and your application and your reasons for going out of practice uh, to clerking? Mm. So then... A reason for going out of practice was to clock. <laughs> um, I only clocked at one court, though. So it was at the Constitutional Court. The justices I, I clocked for were acting justices. So they were permanently stationed at the Supreme mm. Court of Appeal and the High Court, respectively. So I, I only clocked at the Constitutional Court. OK. Um, so, yeah, so, so what had happened was that um, in March of 2015, so March of my second year of articles, um, I came across this opportunity that it's possible to go and clerk at the court. And I was like, this is too cool. Like, I want to go and clerk at the court and, you know, work on these um, high profile matters and engage with these judges. Mm -hmm. Like that was, that, that was literally just a dream for me. Um, so I threw in my application literally on the last day of the, 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 the applications being open uh, because I was actually nervous. I, I didn't even know if my application would even be considered because so many people apply uh, to clerk at the Constitutional Court each year. Um, so it was considered um, and I was um, then subsequently interviewed by I think four, yeah, four of the justices at the Constitutional Court. Um, and then uh, obviously then you're only appointed by one justice. So the justice that had appointed me was Justice van der Westhuizen. Um, but because I had chosen to come in the second um, intake, so in July, because I, I did want to stay on a bit as an associate, um, I, I, I missed his, 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 his outgoing tenure. So I then that was the reason why I was clerking then for the acting justices, as opposed to a permanent justice, because the justice that appointed me had recently retired. Um, so yeah, that, that was the reason why I, I, I had left Cliff Decker Hofmeyer because I, I really wanted to get, um, that exposure of being at the constitutional court. And I knew that it would also involve a lot of, of, of research, which is something I really enjoy. Um, so I made the jump at, when I, when I got the opportunity, it was a no brainer for me. And I, I said my goodbyes and that was that. Um, and then my, my, my experience at the court itself was possibly, I can say probably this far, one of the best years of my life um, as, a, as, a, as, as a young um, legal practitioner. Um, I was obviously exposed to a lot of really, you know, high profile matters um, at the time, uh, I was also, I think something I really enjoyed about the Constitutional Court was also the ability to en engage with the other clerks. So it was a really intellectually stimulating environment. Uh, it also refined my legal analy uh, analytical skills um, and fine-tuned my writing skills as well. So yeah, it was on the whole a very good experience. And once again, at the Constitutional Court, I also met a lot of, you know, brilliant legal minds um, that I have, you know, gone on to, to build further with either um, in, in business or in other areas. And they're just part of my, my network now. So the, my business partner is actually um, Deborah, who I met at the Constitutional Court. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the Constitutional Court, possibly, well, in a way, birthed Tumbo Scott, because we would have never met were it not for the Constitutional Court of South Africa. Okay, wonderful. I'm going to get back to um, you and Deborah just now. But as you were telling us about um, your application, and I mean, congratulations on getting it, <laughs> having applied on the last day or on the closing date. But you mentioned that you were very nervous about applying because you didn't think that you would get in. And that just, to me, says that, you know, there are so many 
of us, especially as black women with uh, imposter syndrome. And we think that this whole imposter yeah. syndrome thing only happens once we are accomplished, you know, you know, once we've been working for 10 years or whatever, and now we are applying for an executive role. But it can also happen very, very early yeah. in your career. And, you know, in hindsight and from some of the, some of the career moves you've made and some of the um, business decisions you've made in, in, in your business, what, what, what tips can you give us or how have you personally dealt with um, feeling, you know, inadequate and with feelings of imposter syndrome? Mm, sure. Um... Yeah, that's a it's a difficult question because I, I feel like um, mm. imposter syndrome isn't necessarily something I can say I have completely left it behind. I mean, uh, even there, there was a, a recent um, seminar I attended and I was literally, I think, the youngest person on that panel. Um, yeah, the youngest, the youngest. Uh, well, there was another older black woman, but I was the, the youngest black woman on that panel. And I was mm -hmm. just like, wow, am I even, <laughs> am I even meant to be here? Um, but then you just, yeah, you channel yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I can't necessarily say it's something that um, I have found a, a, a proper formula to, to sort of, you know, build a bridge over as yet. But in the moment when I do start to have feelings of, of doubt, um, I sort of remember that, because I'm, I mean, I, 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 I am a believer, so I believe that God wouldn't have brought me this far to just, you know, leave me to, to, to hang dry. So I believe that He'll carry me yeah. through whatever um, He He takes me. Well, well, in, well, yeah, through whatever He takes me to. So if He puts me in a specific room, then through Him I will be able to do whatever it is um, I have been called to do in that particular room. Uh, so I don't like without putting God at the center of it. Yeah, I don't have a I don't have another remedy to be honest, mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that's how I I deal with it. I I literally put God at the forefront. Thank you, thank you for sharing, Tepiso. And yeah, so tell us about your journey, um, in business. How did it come about that you and Deborah decided that okay, this is what we're doing when we're done clocking, and um, you know, tell us about the early stages of starting a business. Um, any challenges that you experienced, you know, um, you and Deborah both being women, both being black, both being relatively young, what were some of the challenges that you had to deal with or that you may still continue dealing with? Um, have you built up a team or is it still just you two? Just, um, yeah, just take us through that journey, you know, because I always want people to know that you don't necessarily have to be um, an attorney or you don't have to be an advocate that the law is not always black and white when you have um, a degree, you can diversify, you can be in business like yourself, can be a businesswoman with a legal background. Just tell us a little bit about that journey. Sure. Um, so we started, well, the idea of Tumbo Scott was birthed while we were at the Constitutional Court. We had the option of going back to main stream practice in the bigger firms um, but you know one of the things that we were really passionate about after seeing you know how people struggle to have access to justice um, through the cases that were brought before the court is is making the law more accessible so for both of us because she had uh, completed her articles and being an, being an associate at Weber Wenzel and I at Cliff Decker Hoffmeyer we at that stage would not even have been able to afford our own legal fees. So we wanted to take mm -hmm. our training that we had received from these bigger commercial law firms and make them more accessible to individuals um, and particularly also small and medium-sized businesses who um, require legal services to you know, give their businesses the edge. Yeah. The, the reason why we have these big law firms is because Corporate South Africa realizes the importance um, of navigating the commercial legal landscape. Um, and if you don't have quality uh, legal professionals giving you that guidance, then you keep falling into these legal pitfall, pit, pitfalls, um, which you could have avoided with, with proper legal advice. 
So that was uh, the thinking and the reason why we started uh, Tumbuscat. In the initial phases, it was literally, you know, just looking at servicing the small businesses alone. But we have since expanded and we're servicing, we have, we have particular packages that are suited for the smaller businesses, uh, but our general pricing suits uh, the medium-sized enterprise market. And we can, we do also service um, the bigger corporates when they are looking to, you know, get good quality legal services, mm -hmm. but at a, a much lower rate. So mm -hmm. that that's that's where we, we, we are in terms of our legal services. Um, we are not a two-man show at the moment. So we, we've been around for going on four years in mm. June. Um, so we have another director. So there's three directors at the moment. Um, we have an associate. We have um, a, an executive office manager. And we also have uh, an intern. Uh, then we have a number of consultants as well who are specialized in particular fields and assist us from a capacity perspective if, for instance, there is um, a really big project that we wouldn't be able to handle alone, then we get our, our consultants to also um, get involved and assist us with making sure that we deliver whatever the deliverable is to client um, in a timeless manner. So that's that's our model at the moment, but we are obviously still in the growing phase. So I, I don't think it's gonna end at the current you know, uh, outfit of permanent employees. We are still growing and adapting. Um, so yeah, that's where we are at the moment. Wonderful, thank you. And um, yeah, any, any notable challenges, um, any being undermined, any challenges um, that I mentioned earlier, race-wise, gender-wise, um, age-wise? Yes, um, so when we started the firm, um, I was 27, Deborah was 26. We weren't necessarily super young, but in the legal fraternity that is considered you know, quite young because mostly you'd have a lot uh, older people venturing out on their own after having at least you know five years experience something along those lines uh, so we were relatively young at the time and being black and being female um, did result in a lot of uh, you know undermining uh, so some people would would think that we're a bit too mm. young to be offering the well the services that we we, we think we could offer uh, but what we'd often find is that when we would pitch um, in those initial years, when we pitch uh, to, to potential clients, they would be skeptical before uh, we entered or before we actually started with the pitch. But once we had done the pitch, they would then actually say to us, you know, we didn't think that you would have this amount of experience um, or this amount of, of, of qualifications within your team. Uh, we're really impressed and we'd like to get you on board. So the, the, I think the difficulty is that you're always fighting these stereotype barriers that exist mm -hmm. um, because people always, well, generally, let's say rather historically, uh, the legal fraternity was, you know, uh, uh, dominated by white males. So now coming in as a young black uh, female is sort of challenging all of those stereotypes, which does make it um, a bit more difficult. Uh, but I think now Absolutely. that we have, been, yeah, now that we have been around for a little bit longer, it's be it's it's becoming a little less difficult, honestly, to knock on these doors. You obviously won't get an, a yes at every door, but I, I I I'm I'm starting to sense that the no's are not necessarily now on the basis of our age or our race or our our gender, um, and more on the basis of no, we would prefer to go with, you know, this firm, they're cheaper, you know, like normal commercial considerations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that will continue to be the case as, as we continue to entrench ourselves in the market. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, when I started, when I first went into business, I was 25, 25 going on 26. And I remember sending a company profile and having the company be very, very impressed. Um, and then they asked to meet with me 
and we met mm-hmm. the following week or a few weeks later. And when I got to the office, it was two uh, older gentlemen who 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 were in the meeting, who I, who I was meeting with, like relatively old, like maybe my dad's age. And they both looked at me and they were like, okay, where's your boss type thing? <laughs> and I was like, no, you've been communicating with me. I currently run the company alone. Um, so I am the boss, like here I am. And then the guy yeah. just looked at me and he's like, okay, what, what can you tell me? You, you are literally my daughter's age. How old are you? And at the time, I'm like, I'm 25. And he's like, oh, okay, my daughter's 19. She's just started varsity. And I just remember having to resell the company profile mm-hmm. to myself, even though they had been initially very impressed with the company profile, I still almost had to do like a verbal um, presentation to show them that I know what I'm talking about. And like that story remains very funny to me because this guy was just like, there is no way that my 19 year old daughter is going to, you know, give me legal advice today, basically. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I can, I can definitely relate to that. And also that, that, that component of having to, you know, continuously sell yourself and your business. Um, So I I also remember Mm -hmm. having to do that, for instance, in when we're giving workshops, because you know, workshops is not something you can hide behind emails. It's you, your face, your mm-hmm. your tiny self is in front of people. Um, and before we would give workshops, in some instances, we'd literally start off by having to say, Tebiso is whoever, she has done this, 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 this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. before you even enter into the actual, you know, material that you'll be presenting on, so that people can just be at ease that you do know what you are going to be talking about. So I can totally relate. Mm, thank you. Thank you, Sippy. So uh, tell us a little bit about your LLM, your doctorate. What inspired the decision to specifically go the consumer protection route? And what can, oh, what can you tell us about specifically um, uh, your studies relating to consumer protection for somebody who might be interested in going that route? For somebody who's never even, you know, um, known or heard of that route, not some of these things aren't very popular in varsity. We only become exposed to them mm. later. So, what can you tell somebody to expect if they want to go that route? What are your day-to-day activities like or your tasks? Mm. <clears throat> so, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just take it a few steps back. So. Um, I had decided already, like I said in grade eleven, that I I I, know, I knew that I wanted to um, take my studies as 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 far as possible. Um, so I was already thinking along those lines during my my studies, and in second year we did um, a module called consumer protection. And it comprised of two components, a National Credit Act component and a Consumer Protection Act component. And I felt really drawn to the Consumer Protection Act component because here we had a legislation that was very new at the time. Uh, I mean, it came into full force and effect in around 2011, which is, yeah, which was the year of my second year actually. So at that time it was a very mm-hmm. new piece of legislation. Um, and its intention was to make sure that uh, the man of straw and small businesses are protected from otherwise, you know, very well-resourced businesses who have um, all the legal advice, have all the money uh, to make sure that they protect their legal interests at the expense of the ordinary man of straw and small businesses. So it, 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 it was something that I was intrigued with and something that I wanted to go into further detail on Um, and that's why I I did I actually did in my final year I wrote a because at UP you need to write a research essay in your final year so I wrote my essay on the Consumer Protection Act but particularly on the product liability provisions um, of the act Uh, and then I went to when I went on to write on the promotional activities under the Consumer Protection Act. So basically marketing, how that's regulated in terms of the Consumer Protection Act, my master's degree. And by the time I got to my doctorate, I was at a, in a space where I was thinking that 
the Consumer Protection Act is a really beautiful piece of legislation. It's very well aligned with what people are doing internationally, but we aren't necessarily seeing it translate um, into tangible you know, forms of remedy for people mm, mm. in South Africa. So that, that's when I then zoned in on the enforcement provisions of the Consumer Protection Act. So the title of my doctorate was the realization of rights in terms of the Consumer Protection Act. Um, particularly focusing on how people are able to enforce the rights that they are provided uh, in the Consumer Protection Act and the gaps and the inconsistencies uh, that we find in the act that make it difficult for people to actually get access to redress. So at the end of that research project, there were a, a number of recommendations that I basically uh, made for the legislature to consider when they, uh, you know, amend the Consumer Protection Act in the near future. So that, that was the thinking behind going into consumer protection law. Um, and currently in terms of what I, what I do that specifically relates to consumer protection law within the firm, are from time to time legal opinion pieces that people need advice on that pertain to the Consumer Protection Act. So it's a lot of opinion work that's centered around consumer protection law. Um, and then I do also lecture. So I, I now teach uh, consumer protection law as well. Um, so that is sort of how I, my day-to-day -day in the consumer protection um, law field. But my day-to-day my, my -day comprises of a lot more than the Consumer Protection Act. So even though that was my, that is uh, my major field of research, um, and a major area of interest in terms of law for me. Um, I do still, uh, you know, uh, dabble in corporate law as well, um, which is something that I had picked up from my, you know, my early years of my earlier years and articles and also being an associate at CDH and then also um, in terms of providing services at, at Tumbo Scott. Um, so company law is something that I'm also quite passionate on, particularly um, the corporate governance provisions of company law, things like directors' duties, directors' um, liabilities, and, and the like. So I'm sort of in those two areas at the moment. Um, I haven't necessarily solidified myself into a specific area, um, or yes, one of the two at the moment. Thank you. So yeah, no, you really went in depth with that. I really appreciate that. And I know that there's a listener out there who you have piqued their interest in, in consumer protection law. Thanks. Hopefully. <laughs> so just um just before I let you go, you mentioned uh being a lecturer, and that just made me think about how back back in in, in, in like my day. Um, we had we had lecturers who were mostly male and um, mostly white, and obviously the okay we, we we rarely saw black female lecturers on issues of transformation. What can you say about um, black female professionals in 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 the academic space? Do you think that? Um, you know, a lot of progress has been done in the last, say, 10 years in representing specifically Black women in, in lecturing roles or um, roles of being professors. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I've only, you know, started going into academia last year, so it's only been a year, but from the exposure that I've had so far, I do not think that there has enough that that has been enough um, that has been done in terms of you know getting uh, black females um, to to progress in in academia um, and I'm not I'm not saying this in the sense that I don't think we have uh, we don't have opportunity or anything but um, I mean if the numbers speak for themselves in 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 a department for instance you would have let's say 15 um you know white people and mm -hmm. then of the, the balance would be like you know four black people so i don't think that's a representation of our demographics um so i think more can be done 
um, there, there are, you know, moves towards transformation that are happening that I think we, we most of us who are keeping an eye on academia are aware of. I mean, particularly mm -hmm. in tax, we've seen, um, you know, the, there's a deputy dean, he's a black male, there's a HOD in one of the departments, also a black male. So those are, you know, steps that are being taken in terms of transforming the academic space. But I, I do think that um, there is, you know, a lot more work to be done. So far, I think in, our, in, in the faculty, there's probably, okay, let me not say, because I don't actually know, but there's only one um, black female professor that I know of personally, and mm -hmm. I stand to be correct. And that's an entire you know, faculty. So that means that there is a lot of work that still needs to be done um, in terms of taking you know, the younger academics like myself up the, the, the ranks in academia so that there is adequate representation and making sure that they are also given access to opportunity. So I think it's something that's a work in progress, but it looks like it's something that institutions are, are taking seriously. I mean, also at, at UCT, we have the vice chancellor is a black female, which is really good for representation. Um, but yeah, I think that there is more to still be done. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the lecturing space as well, or or um, or a, a place in, in academia is also very reflective of corporate South Africa as a whole. We I guess mm -hmm. tend to forget that a you know university is also a company at the end of the day, and that a lot of the structures will reflect you know the systemic um, racism or the systemic structures that exist in society as a whole. So we definitely do have a long way to go. Yes, yes, we mm -hmm. do. Yeah, and on a lighter note, before letting you go, if you could host one person, dead or alive, for dinner. Who would it be and why? And what would you guys be eating? What What would you prepare for them? Wow, Tibelo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, sure. Sure. Um, Sure. Okay, let me start on what I would prepare for them. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm not really, uh, you know, one of the world's greatest cooks, but I, I try myself out every now and then. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I try to make them, you know, prawn curry and some basmati rice um, mm -hmm. and a little salad. Um, yeah, and we could, you know, sit and have a good time there. Uh, but maybe thinking as I'm speaking, perhaps it would actually be my late grandfather, um, my, my paternal late grandfather. So he passed away when my grandmother was pregnant with my dad. Um, he's the reason why uh, my surname is Scott. I have a lot of questions for him. <laughs> I have a lot okay. of questions. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, so our original surname is, is Segoto. Um, and I, I understand that he changed it during apartheid you know, for whatever reason, like missionary related reason. Oh. Oh. Um, but I mean, I would, I would love to, you know, go into uh, some conversation with him to find out what, what his plans were, whether he thinks it was worth it, you know, all those types of questions, just mm. um, sort of for, for identity purposes. But yeah, I think that would be someone who I would like to, to engage with. My grandfather. That's very, very interesting. Can you just sorry, can you repeat the surname he had before Scott? It was Segoto. So Segoto as in Gerard Segoto. Oh. I don't know if you've ever heard of yes. Some artists. Oh yes, yes, yes. Oh, that is yeah, so, so interesting. That is very yeah. interesting. <laughs> so it's literally just my dad and his siblings who have the surname Scott. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That is very, very interesting. Sure. <laughs> Like I, yeah. I, I've always, you know, heard of people who, who like change their surnames during apartheid, or or usually mm -hmm. their names as well. I mean, we all know that um, there was a there was a phase where black people were being given white names because their, you know, bosses yes. or whatever yes. their owners, whatever the case was, couldn't pronounce their Kosa name or whatever the case was. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, I. 
very interesting. And that is a very interesting person to, to want to have dinner with and just understand your family tree. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Nice, nice, nice. And now, yeah, before I let you go, any, any one thing that you'd like to say that I probably didn't touch on that you'd just like to close off the show with, it can relate to anything in or out of the legal profession, maybe even a personal motto, anything really that you'd just like to close off with. Mm. Um, I think the only thing that um, I, I'd want to share, and it's, I think it's, it's not something that is unheard of, but I think it's something that we ought to often remind ourselves of is that opportunity meets preparation. Um, because I, I think that I've come a lot of, uh, across a lot of people who, and, and I'm not trying to downplay the lack of opportunity sometimes in the South African market, um, but who feel like, you know, there's absolutely no hope. Um, and, you know, especially as a black person in South Africa, you know, you need to jump through the hoops of corruption before you can get anything. But I, I really, um, I really don't like that narrative that you need to, you know, jump through the hoops of corruption in order to become something um, as a black person in South Africa. So what I, I, I always like to encourage people to do is prepare yourself for whatever it is that you're praying for, whatever it is that you're hoping for, prepare yourself. If you want to become um, an attorney or an advocate, get your LLB. You're not going to be able to step into any room without an LLB. Um, and as much as, you know, fees are an issue, I think I'm, I'm, I'm one of the textbook issues of I mean, textbook examples of how fees can be an issue that you need to, you know, get uh, bursaries from big corporates to get you through your education, but do what you must so that at least you can be prepared um, for the particular opportunity that you want. So that when the opportunities actually arise, you're also well equipped, you have your degree, at least to step into that room. Um, so yeah, that's, that's all I, I'd want to share is to remind everyone that opportunity meets preparation. Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sipiso. Thank you for taking us through your journey. Um, thank you for, you know, educating us on the various, um, you know, paths that one can take once they have a legal uh, qualification. You really have taken us through, um, you know, the, you, the highlights in your career. You've taken us through your articles, clerking at the Constitutional Court and also you know being in business and i think those are three main the three main pillars that you have um used with your with your law degree and i believe that the exposure that you've had in every um in in, in every environment that you've worked have only propelled you for success in your business with debra yes i would like to hope so <laughs> thank yes. you thank you Thank you so much Thank you for so being much, on the Michelle. show. Um, I wish you well for the year ahead. I wish you well in your business and may the two of you grow from strength to strength. And hopefully one of these days, one of our listeners will be working for you soon. And yes, that would you. be lovely. <laughs> yes, that would be lovely. Thank you so much, Dwello. Thank you for having me. All right, bye. All right, bye.